Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Well, here we are, 24 hours later. A lot happens in a day, huh? Or maybe it seems like nothing's happened in a day. <laughs> or both. Or both, yeah. First, I just want to acknowledge that uh, the first day of practice for anybody is often challenging. Not always, as some people said in, uh, in groups or in interviews, oh, it feels so good to to not have to do or take care of lots of, of things. And, and there's also that place of refuge in the silence. But for many people, as I said last night, common experience is um, sleepiness. How many people have had sleepiness today? Okay. So give you a group feeling of company. <clears throat> restlessness. How many people have had restlessness Okay. Um, aches in the body. Okay. Okay. This one's guaranteed. Busy mind. <laughs> okay. So you're all right on schedule. You're just doing fine. That's part of the process of, of settling in. And often at the uh, beginning, the first day of retreat, particularly if this is relatively new, but even if you've been doing it for some time, the thought can creep in or sometimes loudly blare out, what am I doing here? Or why? What's supposed to be going on? What did I ever think I was doing by signing up for this? That's a common thought. And tonight what I thought I would do is um, give you a little bit of a of an understanding or a framework of how this process works. So it might give you some edification that there really is a value to what you're doing if if that thought has come to you. <clears throat> and I I want to do it uh, using one of the famous lists of the Buddhist teaching. There's so many lists for people who like lists, to-do lists, or thinking uh, to-not-do lists. Um, There's a list for almost anything. The list that I find particularly useful in understanding the process of practice is called the five spiritual faculties. Uh, the, The five are faith, energy, or effort, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. There are two ways to, uh, to go about understanding this list. One is that it is um, a list of balancing qualities where faith and wisdom need to be in balance. If they're not in balance, if there's a lot of faith but not much wisdom, it becomes blind faith. If there's a lot of wisdom in the sense of the, um, the analytical 
uh, exploration, but not a heartfelt quality of trust or faith. Uh, it becomes dry and can lead to skepticism and doubt. So those need to be balanced, both the heart and the, the mind. And interestingly enough, the word, uh, there's one word that covers both heart and mind in uh, Buddhist practice, the word <coughs> citta, sometimes translated as heart or sometimes mind. And you can take your pick if you find that you're that when I say mind, you want a little bit more juice, just translate it as heart. And if I say heart and it seems a little bit sloppy, just translate it as mind, wherever your tendency is. But those two aspects need to be in balance. And concentration and energy also need to be in balance. If there's too much energy and not enough stillness, concentration, we become restless. If there's too much stillness, which is really the essence of concentration and not enough energy, we become dull and get into a kind of a torpor or sinking state. So they have to be balanced. Mindfulness, the factor in the middle, is the balancing factor. It develops all of these and also has the, the beautiful property of bringing them all into balance and harmony. So that's one way to look at this list. A second way is um, <coughs> that, excuse me, that watch is a little distracting. So thank you. The second way to understand this list is in a more linear fashion. And although the practice isn't so neat as to be, you do this one, then you go to this one and this one, the way that um, the practice unfolds uh, can I find it helpful to understand by going through the list in this linear fashion. The, the first faculty or is faith, which also has a number of different synonyms. And if the word faith touches a place in you that brings you back to Sunday school or, oh, did I not have enough or if I only had some more faith, then you can translate it in other ways. The word in Pali is sadha, S-A-D-D-H-A, which literally means to put one's heart upon. I talked last night about a wholeheartedness in the practice. The synonyms for faith are trust, confidence, that being willing to put your heart into, into the practice without knowing what's going to happen because there's some sense that it will be of value and that faith can come from a number of different sources. I'm going to take this as off. That I want to mention. If this is something new to you, then probably you got here because you either read a book maybe you read Tara's book and were very inspired or uh, some, some other wonderful Dharma book or heard a teacher talk and maybe give you an inkling that there was something to be discovered here or um, you have a friend who's been very inspired by the practice and, uh, and said, this is a good thing to do. 
and perhaps by seeing how they've grown, uh, you've been inspired, and hopefully they'll still be your friend in a few days. <laughs> but there's some, something that got you here, and the initial level of faith is that of what's sometimes called bright faith or inspiration. And I'll spend, uh, although there are five faculties, I'm going to be spending a good chunk of time on the, the first two because it gives me a, a, a chance to explain um, what gets us going and how to go about doing this practice. So this inspiration, do you remember what it was that inspired you to sign up for something like this? Just think for a moment. Think back. Just something touched your heart that said, yes, okay, I need to do this. Even if, You might not have even known why, but something said, this is calling me. And if you've been around somebody who's quite inspiring, it's easy to, uh, to get in touch with what it was that's moved you. I remember the first time I heard these teachings, um, which was in uh, 1974, the summer of 74, at uh, Naropa Institute. It was the first summer that Naropa opened. <clears throat> and I went there to, because Ramdas was there, and I had been carrying around Be Here Now like a Bible for about three years. <laughs> and in that conversation, I had an interview with Ramdas, and I asked him about many, many things. And, um, and I asked him about meditation. I'd been doing some other kinds of meditation. And he said, uh, go go check out this guy Goldstein. He's teaching a, a class. It's called Essential Buddhism. I went in that class, and I first I sat down. For the first few minutes, um, that guy Goldstein, Joseph Goldstein, didn't quite match my ideal of what a very deeply powerful, wise being was. And I sat there first saying, well, he's not much older than me. He sounds like he's from Brooklyn. I'm from Queens, you know. <laughs> he's actually from upstate New York, but he had the Brooklyn in him. You know? And uh, he didn't quite fit my ideal, so I spent about ten minutes doing that. And then I just started hearing what he was saying. And coming from such a, a deep place, and because he wasn't that so different from me, it occurred to me that he knew he knew something that I didn't know and I wanted to know what it was and if he could do it maybe I could as well that's what he was saying and he said basically I got that I don't have to be run by my neurotic thought patterns that would never have occurred to me before. <laughs> I thought it was pretty much the way it was going to be. But he so inspired me after those first 10 minutes, I trusted him implicitly. And perhaps you have met somebody in your life who has motivated you like that, whether it's the Dalai Lama or, uh, or a, a wonderful teacher, that there's something here to be understood. And then as, as the practice went on and I, I started getting a lot of faith in the Buddhist teachings because it all made sense, especially when he said, don't 
have to believe anything. Just check it out for yourself. But one line has stayed with me for many, many years. I think Tara might have even said it last night. I, I, I forget. But the one line, if it were not possible to free the mind of greed, hatred, and delusion, I would not tell you to do so. But it is possible, and this is why I teach. Just straightforward, but said with such conviction. That's another word for sada, conviction. And so I started on this path. Faith is the antidote to doubt, the doubting mind. And doubt comes to everybody. It came to the Buddha before he was enlightened, until he, you probably have seen the image of the Buddha touching the ground. Just before that, Mara trying to confuse him and, and say, uh, finally, the ultimate confusion was, or attempt to confuse him, in saying, what gives you the right to think that you can be here and become enlightened? That's mm-hmm. doubt. It came to the Buddha. And then the Buddha touched the ground and, said, and realized all the work that he'd been doing over lifetimes. And that was his moment of awakening. Or Jesus on the cross. We see Jesus on the cross, uh, crosses all over here. And just in that moment that was so moving, his humanity, where he, he wonders why, if God has forsaken him before he becomes truly free. So if you have a little doubt, you've got some good company in there too. It comes to everyone. The bright faith is is really tremendously uplifting, but it can only go so far before it becomes blind faith. So that is then supplanted or bolstered, deepened with verified faith where you see for yourself after you there's also the faith that comes from reasoning and sorting out yes this makes sense this well I don't know about that but this does and then you put yourself into the practice and you see for yourself yes this really works that's what's so much um, uh, what's so helpful about being an experienced um, practitioner, you come on the retreat, even though you're going through the usual settling in, you know that this, this works. I had this experience of verified faith. It was on my second retreat where I had tremendous doubt. It was, uh, I was a phony. Everybody around was a phony. They just were looking spiritual. The teachers, I didn't know if they knew what they were doing. And I... I had this, uh, this wave of, of doubt, and I tried to sit, I couldn't sit, I tried to walk, I couldn't walk, and finally I just, I just needed to cool out, and I decided I just needed to lie down because I was just spinning my wheels. And as I went up to my little cubicle in this meditation center in Toledo, um, Washington, Toledo, Washington, um, there was a picture of Neem Karoli Baba, who, as I said, from the Ramdas, from Be Here Now, was a, a, a real main connection for me. And he had this big smile and twinkle in his eye, and he was looking at me, and it was like he was saying through the picture, hmm, we're getting pretty freaked out, aren't we? You know, <laughs> the big, big laugh in his, uh, on his face. And I just saw this heaviness that I was going through, and just, 
in that moment, it all broke. It was like the doubt just vanished because I saw I was just spinning my wheels and, oh, I don't have to believe that whole thing. And just seeing Maharaji and open up my heart, I got really excited because I thought I had conquered doubt. (laughs) (laughs) And I couldn't wait to tell Joseph, my teacher, I conquered doubt. Unfortunately, the interview was about, oh, six or eight hours from that moment. <laughs> so you can guess. Actually, it was, the, it was the, the next day. It was like late in the afternoon. It was the early, early morning. And between that moment of exhilaration, yes, to joy and ease, and then I kind of crashed, and I was kind of like spinning around confused and I went just everywhere in between that time and the time the interview came and I went into the interview and I sat down and Joseph said so what's what's happening and I said in complete exasperation and total innocence it's always changing And he said, that's it. You got it. And although I'd heard him say those words so many times before, oh, I get it. That's what it means. It really is always changing. That was one of my first experiences with verified faith. Nobody can take that away from you once you understand. Have you seen how things change? Have you seen how things change for you today? How many different moods you've gone through? Have you seen how many thoughts you've had? How many would you say? Can't count that high. Have you seen how many different body sensations you've had? Always changing. That's one aspect of of faith, to see how things change. And we'll get to the others uh, later on in the talk. So this kind of faith is really beautiful to see that, oh, there is real truth in these, these teachings. Faith or trust, I should say, is, is an elusive kind of thing when you think of it as having faith in myself. Will I be able to do it? Or can I trust myself? I had this, this um, period when I went through tremendous doubt in myself and just saying, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I'm up to this. I don't know if I can trust. And Joseph, as he often did, said, don't worry about trusting in yourself. Trust in the awareness. And that has been, for me, the hallmark of what real trust is. That it doesn't mean that everything's going to work out just perfectly, just how you hoped, but rather that everything is workable. And when you get to the moment that you're afraid of, you can trust that your awareness will meet it. It always has. It's just the wheels that spin around and say, "Uh uh-oh, what if this time I can't do it? That's just the mind. But the trust that comes in from seeing that every moment you can meet with a kind, wise awareness as you get more and more in touch with that, that is 
that's a, a very deep, it becomes an unshakable faith. And part of it means letting go of thinking you can control your experience, which is all about as you trust more and more, there's a surrender of your control. I like to think of it as um, a little kid learning to be in the water. Remember when you were first put in the water and they said, go ahead, you can do it, and you're kind of flailing around, what do you mean, I'm drowning here? And they say, just relax, relax, I'm going under, you know. And after a while, you might get the idea of just kind of, oh, if I don't flail so much, I can tread, and I can actually stay on top of water. And then the magic moment when you somehow learn, I can completely let go and just float and be held. That's what we're learning to do, going from flailing to floating, trusting that life can hold us if we bring a kind and wise awareness. So this is the, the first quality of the five. That faith or trust in the process where you let go of controlling and just meet the moment gives you the inspiration to put in the effort to be here. Faith or trust leads to effort. And I, I'll speak about it in terms of effort for this talk. So it's, it's actually energy, but energy comes from, from a sincere effort. So effort, one of the most um, central issues in practice particularly as you're doing this practice, when you want to do it right, has that thought come to you? Am I doing it right? And you can try really hard and get more wound up into a ball. Or you can just kind of say, this is too much, I'll just kick back, and if I'm mindful, I'm mindful, if I'm not, I'm not, and chances are you won't be. (laughs) So finding this balance of effort is really a central aspect of practice. Not only that, but you can get different messages at different times, depending upon what you uh, what you're reading or what the emphasis is that the teacher might give there's lots of different approaches to practice you might hear the approach that's called heroic effort we studied with one one master whose line that stuck in my mind was abandon all concern for the body Okay, that'll kind of get you, get you going. You know, if your leg is falling off, note it as it goes down. (laughs) (laughs) And I know how to practice like that, and has some value if you can remember to keep things light. But it does have value to practice with such wholeheartedness. And these days, as I mentioned last night, a balance between a wholeheartedness and an ease and a lightness really is, is the, the, the 
the perfect marriage of the two. But there is these, these different teachings, practice like your hair is on fire, a famous line, where the Buddha is saying, strive on diligently. You're, we're like children playing in the, an attic of a house that we don't realize is on fire and we're playing with our toys. He's saying, this is such a precious opportunity, make it count. Okay, yes. I don't want to waste this. This sense of urgency can be so inspiring. It can also be contracting. And for the type A types, that's not the message that they need to hear. Then there's the other that says, simple and easy. One of, one of my teachers and Joseph's main teacher, uh, one of his main teachers, Manindraji, would say, simple and easy, just keep things simple and easy, empty phenomena rolling on. Or Ajahn Buddhadasa saying, nothing to do, nothing to be, nothing to have. And there's a, if I can find it here. Ah, yeah. Here's a, a Tibetan um, teaching. Happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already here in relaxation and letting go. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you relax this grasping, space is here, open, inviting, and comfortable. It goes on, just, ah, yes, just rest in your natural awareness. Sounds pretty good. (laughs) They say this after you've done the preliminary practices, which are 100,000 prostrations, 100,000 mantra recitations and visualizations. Then they say, just relax. (laughs) Well, they're both true. They are both important to not practice with straining, but practice with a wholeheartedness because it takes some effort to get here into the present moment. You've seen how hard it is even when somebody's saying, bring your attention back. Oh, yeah. (laughs) You're sitting in a room with 50 people. We're all meditating. Oh, yeah, come on back. This is, one teacher has called it manual labor, just kind of coming back. Okay, come on back. To finally land, it takes a little while to land in the present moment. You know, a day or two or three, you know, and after a while you land, and you might find that you've had moments where you've landed already. Once you're here in the present moment, you don't need to try any harder. In fact, any kind of trying, and you're in a doing mode. You're in a becoming where this moment isn't good enough. So when you're completely here, just resting in the moment and letting it just be, letting yourself be the space of awareness, letting yourself be the moment. Ah, nothing to do, nothing to be, nothing to have. So it's a matter of finding the balance between this doing and being. And they both complement each other. And as you can guess, just like in riding a bicycle, it's not like you, you're supposed to do this much and that's it, but it's a continual adjustment depending upon where your energy is. The first day or so, as I said, your energy is so lethargic. You know, it feels sometimes like you're going through a, a swamp or some marshes. You, ever, you know what that feeling is like? Mm, sluggish. And... and 
it takes some effort to be here to keep on bringing yourself back. But here's the key to this all. If you equate effort with results, you're setting yourself up for trouble. If you think, oh, well, gee, I'm really not so mindful now. I must not be doing enough. Watch out. And if you think, ah, yeah, now it's all happening. Now I've got it made. Okay, watch out. Because it changes. It's always changing. So it's a continual adjustment and seeing what can bring me to this moment and, ha- and help me meet it in a connected and relaxed and awake way. That balance of effort is really the key, but not to equate it with what's going on in your meditation. And people can have all kinds of ideas of what they think a good meditator would look like. Well, if I'm really doing it well, there'll be no thought. I said this in my, my group today. When I, my first couple of years, I had this subtle idea if I was really doing it it would be like this giant vacuum cleaner would come and just (laughs) suck all the thoughts out blank (laughs) cool now don't wait for that one (laughs) chances are you know it doesn't happen very often it might happen for fleeting moments where the mind is completely blank But you can't make that happen. And even if it does, it'll come and it'll go. Some people have the idea they can hear, say, somebody near them sobbing, which can can often happen. They think, oh, I'm just sitting here with the breath and not much is happening. You know, my emotional life seems dead. Somebody said this to me today and uh, I, I... Answered back, yeah, I remember going to, uh, to Joseph and saying, you know, I'm just here with the breath, and all around me people are going through all these catharsis, and, uh, you know, uh, am I missing something? And he said, don't go looking for trouble. It'll find you soon enough, and, and it did. But if you have some kind of idea, I should be really emotionally stretched and just in my heart and gushing, or I should have no thought, or if I'm really doing it, doing it well, I'll be able to just go like a zombie or Marcel Marceau. (laughs) No. Just another thought. It doesn't look any one way. Don't equate effort with results. And don't have any kind of idea of what a good yogi is supposed to look like especially when we reference ourselves against others. And you've probably seen how quickly the mind will be aware when there's somebody else around and and how they're doing and get into comparison and all. You know what I mean? It's amazing how we can start judging ourselves against others. And there's a whole spirit of, of presentation that happens. And it's humbling. We'll be talking, I'm sure Tara will be talking more about that, and and I will as well, how that comparing mind comes into play, where you stop being within yourself, and you are, in the context, referencing yourself to others. On one retreat, I'd be doing slow walking meditation, and I do, at some point, get into that mode and just enjoy it, not because I'm trying to be good, it just kind of feels 
for me, after a number of days or a week or so, you just kind of, oh, it just feels so delicious. But when I'd be by myself, I'd have a whole different attitude than if somebody else was around. And I'd be walking by myself, nobody else around, just lifting, moving, placing, just so complete. Then somebody else would come, and there'd be a whole different quality. And I started noting it, just lifting, moving, looking good. <laughs> lifting, moving, looking good, looking good. Lifting. It was very humbling, but when I named it, it just broke the whole trance. Well, that's what goes on. After a while, I was just looking good, looking good, looking bad, looking bad. And then at some point, you just kind of put that aside, and you just do your practice for yourself. But the effort is not about judging yourself against others or your own self-evaluation. Am I doing it good enough or not good enough? Really, the key to effort is not the, the head kind of being tough and tight and being a macho meditator, the most profound source of effort is your own sincerity of heart. The willingness to be here as best you can, you showing up and doing the best you can and letting the Dharma take care of the rest. It is such a relief. The first time it, it occurred to me, it dramatically changed my practice to realize I have no control over how concentrated I am. I have no control over how mindful I am. You know, you can go into a sitting and say, I'm going to be concentrated if it kills me. <laughs> it might if you have that attitude. You, know. <laughs> you don't have control over it. As much as you want to be concentrated and mindful... What you do have, which is all you need, is the sincere willingness to be here as best you can. And if you keep on coming back when you see you've gone, after a while, you start to become more mindful. So to let go of the idea that you can control your experience by sheer willpower and to just trust your own sincerity of heart fact, just reminded, I came across this letter that was written a number of years ago by a yogi. Um, he actually had done some practice. Uh, he ended up becoming a, um, an anagarika or a, a novice. I don't know if he became a monk uh, with Amravati Sangha. But this is a big insight for him he shared with me. It is indeed a huge relief to realize, one, that I am not in charge of my thoughts, that they come up completely unbidden. It is also a relief to know I'm not in charge of my moments of awareness, that these are indeed just beautiful gifts. I think I've been laboring under the assumption that by sheer effort of will, I could manufacture awareness, and that the only reason I w it wasn't happening was because of laziness, weak brain power, lack of dedication, etc., etc. So this shift of emphasis towards faith and sincerity of heart, letting the process evolve at its own speed, in its own direction, has made me incredibly happy. If you can get that, you'll save yourself a whole lot of extra self-judgment. You just show up with that sincerity of heart, and that's your end of the deal. And everything follows from that. One other thing about effort before I go on. 
The key to effort is, besides sincerity, is interest. And you can let the practice be playful. You can enjoy the walking. You can enjoy the breath. It might seem kind of bland to you, but if this was your last breath, do you think you'd be interested? (laughs) Sometimes I do that with myself. Oh, what if this is my last breath? Or just imagining it's my first breath in my life. Mm, all of a sudden has some vitality and, and enthusiasm. Or realizing this is what's keeping me alive. Wow. And at first you might have to muster up or trick yourself into thinking that it's interesting. But the, the thing is that the more effort, here's the, here's the equation, I'm just getting a little bit ahead, but the more you're willing to make the effort to be here, the stronger the mindfulness becomes. The stronger the mindfulness, the more you see. The more you see, the more interesting things are. The more interesting they are, the more you want to be around for them. So although it's a paradox, and although at the beginning it seems like it takes some, it does take some effort to get here, actually 100% effort is easier in the long run than 80% or 50% effort. Because if it's not, if you're kind of half-hearted, the mindfulness isn't strong, and things are not as interesting, and well, maybe I will, maybe I won't. Okay, but what does 100% effort mean? It doesn't mean turning up the jets all the time. (coughs) All that does is give you a headache. It's got to be a balance of effort. And so if you're finding that you're, the walls are closing in and you're claustrophobic, time to just relax and lighten up. Going for a walk, maybe having a mindful cup of tea. That can be very useful. If you're finding you're kind of lolling about, then renewing your commitment is where the effort is in that, in that moment. So it's whatever will support you in meeting the moment as best you can. And at different times, that might look (coughs) differently. The effort to be mindful leads to the third faculty, mindfulness, which, as you probably know, is really the central point of all of meditation practice or the central factor of all of meditation practice. And in in the Buddha's discourse on mindfulness, he says, just at the beginning, there is a most wonderful way to help living beings realize purification, overcome directly grief and sorrow, end pain and anxiety, travel the right path, and realize complete freedom. This way is the four establishments of mindfulness. Mindfulness has the the quality of developing all the other wholesome states. It's very, very simple, but it's very, very profound. So what is mindfulness? It's basically knowing what's happening now without grasping at the pleasant, without pushing away the unpleasant, and without taking ownership of the experience as mine or me, my 
wonderful thought, my ugly thought, my uncooperative body, my really wonderful body. It's just this process that's happening on its own that you don't have to take ownership of. But let's just see how mindfulness works. I'll give you a couple of exercises to show you the, the power of mindfulness. Okay, I did this in one, one group today, in my one group. Just uh, try this. Put your hand out in front of you. Okay? And very slowly move it back and forth and close your eyes, putting all your attention on the movement. Right now, is there any fear? Any confusion? As you feel the movement, any yesterday or tomorrow? It's just feeling the movement. Okay. okay, you can open your eyes. That's it. You were just mindful. Okay. Now, it wasn't like the sky opened up and you got zapped and the big E came, you know, of enlightenment. <laughs> But in that moment, there's a fullness, a full <coughs> connection, a balance that's with what is actually happening. And you're not confused or lost in your thoughts or your stories that frighten or trouble or, or stir up that essential basic peace of this moment is fine, just as it is. This is the same as feeling a breath, Lifting your foot and placing it down. Feeling a sensation in the body. And the interesting thing is, although we think that things have to be pleasant mostly, (coughs) oh, if they're pleasant, then they're worthy of our attention. We can train ourselves to see that pleasant or unpleasant, we can still bring an interest and a wholeness to our experience. Just like you pay good money for a comedy or for a heart-stirring picture, or for a melodrama. Some people pay good money for horror shows. I don't do that, but you can be entertained with anything. Okay, (coughs) And you can see it doesn't have to be sweet and delicious to to be able to be here and be connected with it. So whatever you're doing, if you bring that sense of, oh, this is what's happening now, can I let it be how it is and bring a kind awareness to it? That's mindfulness. Here's another way that mindfulness works on a mental realm when we get lost in our stories. Just for a moment, close your eyes. Think of some, somebody who touches off some thoughts or feelings. Okay? And have an image of them. Just bring them right here. Got the image. Let yourself feel the feelings that come as you think about this person. Now, become aware that you're sitting in a room full of people and we're all making pictures in our mind. That's what's happening. We're just sitting here and making pictures together. We each have our own little movie. Okay, you can open your eyes. You notice any difference between being in the middle of the movie and being aware that you're making a picture and that you've just created a movie? That second experience is a moment of wakefulness, of waking up from the movie. Ah, just making a picture. doesn't mean you can't be touched by 
the relationship or whatever it does, but to realize, oh, when you get lost, it's just a story that I was believing or a thought that I was creating that I then got lost in. Mindfulness is both alert and receptive. You're not trying to change or fix anything, and you're not trying to analyze or figure out a huge piece of information to realize about <coughs> mindfulness. This is from uh, a, um, a retreat, in her first retreat. She wrote me this note at the end of the retreat, and she was having a hard time. She was giving herself a hard time by just trying to get to the bottom of everything and spinning her wheels over and over until finally she got it towards the end of the retreat. And she shared this amongst this other things that she wrote in this letter. She says, The one thing that is indelibly in my brain is finally realizing you don't have to figure it out. That would never, ever register in my mind as an option before. Then yesterday, I was walking and struggling in my brain, thinking round and round, and this voice came into my head that said, you don't have to figure it out. And I stopped and closed my eyes and asked myself, what is true right now in this moment? And what was true was the rising and falling of my breath and various body sensations coming and going. And the rest will balance itself out in its own time, I thought to myself. And I resumed my walking. What a revelation. If you can give your figuring out mind a break for these next few days, you'll see the profundity of what she discovered. Not only do you not have to figure it out, generally we can't figure it out. (laughs) This is sometimes called insight meditation. Insight doesn't come by being really clever. You know, it's not like if things, if you say, oh, I know how it's going to be, or, oh, this is going to, if you end up and it works out that way, all you do is pat yourself on the back and say, pretty clever. But in order for it, real insight, an experience of, aha, oh, look at that. It means you let go of your figuring out mind and something emerged. The wisdom had a space to emerge and be revealed. So you don't have to figure it out. The other aspect of mindfulness that you should know is that there, it doesn't look any one way. There's lots of different ways to be mindful. There are four foundations that the Buddha talked about. He said mindfulness of the breath, of the body. That's all in the first foundation. Mindfulness in sitting and walking in different postures, just being aware of what is happening in your body. There's mindfulness in the second foundation of the feeling tone of experience, the flavor of it. Oh, this is a pleasant moment. This is an unpleasant moment. This is a neutral moment. He said that's a fine thing to notice as well. It's very profound, and I don't have time for it right now to go into it, but this is really a key to breaking the chain of grasping or aversion, to just see, oh, this is unpleasant, or this is pleasant. He said mindfulness can be of mind states, of thoughts and emotions. Oh, this is freaking out. That's what's going on. (laughs) Freaking out, Buddha, right? (laughs) For me... um, 
when I can't figure out what, and I, when I'm not trying to figure out, when I have no idea what is going on, and I just don't know what to pay attention to, because I'm so confused, that's fine. If you remember, as I sometimes do, wrap up the whole experience into one big package and just call it confusion. Well, that's what's happening, confusion. Confuse Buddha. Okay? And in that moment, you're clear. You might be clearly confused, but you're, you're clear about it. And that moment of mindfulness is just as potent and profound and liberating as feeling the hair in your nostrils sway in the breeze as you're feeling the breath. Don't get tricked into thinking that it's supposed to always be microscopically mindful. It can be any lens that lets you take in the experience. It can be refined, it can be zoom, microscopic, and you can see the subtleties of experience. It can be wide-angle panoramic and just knowing, oh, confusion, or oh, ease. Manindraji, this teacher I mentioned before, he said, if you sit and know you're sitting, the whole of the Dharma is revealed. It can be as simple as that, to just sit and know you're sitting. You're doing it. You're fine. So just to notice any kind of ideas or conceptions you have about what good practice looks like and let go of it. All you need to do, what's happening now? Can I let it be how it is and bring a kind awareness to it? Unless you're struggling, at which point you don't have to be with what's predominant. But that's the first strategy. And perhaps we'll get to the others in, in success, in, uh, later on in the retreat. But basically, what's happening now, and bring a kind awareness to it. Those moments of mindfulness build on each other and start to build a momentum so that concentration becomes developed. And that's the fourth faculty. Faith leading to effort, the effort to be mindful leading to mindfulness developing, mindfulness becoming stronger, and concentration results. Concentration is a one-pointedness or a steadiness in the moment. Sometimes it can look like a one-pointed laser-like penetration say if you're noticing the subtle microscopic details of something, but there's another concentration that is just as profound and powerful, and that is the moment-to-moment concentration that can be with changing experience. So here you are, you're sitting, and there's the breath, and when you're when you get into these, when the mindfulness builds and you're, you're concentrated, there can be feeling the breath, and as the instructions will open up and will include more and more things, hearing a sound, noticing a sensation, noticing a mood, noticing a thought, noticing another thought, noticing another thought, coming back to the breath, just one after another after another. That kind of concentration is just as liberating as the first. Now, concentration is where sometimes people say, oh, okay, this is where I just, you know, I just kind of can't seem to do it. Concentration takes a special environment. That's why people 
come to retreats with minimal stimulation and just bringing yourself back again and again, you start to settle in. One way that I, I think of the concentration developing, if you want to kind of play around with it, Joseph has this, this, uh, this teaching. I hadn't thought about this in years, but I've just recently picked it up again. He used to call it um, NPMs, noticings per minute. <laughs> if you want to just play around and see, oh, oh okay, here, here, here. Now, at the beginning, maybe you'll notice one or two breaths in a sitting. You know, if that was your experience, you're probably not alone. Maybe you're present for 1% or 2% of the time. Maybe in a few days you'll be present for 10% or 15% of the time. Well, that's like 10 or 15 times what you were. And every moment of mindfulness is liberating and counts. Here's the thing, here's the keys about concentration. One, it requires great patience. If you try to hurry up the process, then you just get more tight and contracted. So you just allow the process to unfold as you put in that sincere intention to be here. A second aid to concentration, keeping it really simple. Most of us are so good at multitasking. You think, hey, cool, I can do eight things at a time, you know. I grew up in New York City where you kind of pride yourself on how well you can multitask. Well, we've got that one down pretty well. Here's the challenge. Do one thing at a time. That's not so easy. Keep it really, really simple. So when you're tying your shoes, you're just tying your shoes. When you're brushing your teeth, you're just brushing your teeth. When you're sitting, you're just sitting. Okay? When you're, especially in your in-between activities, just be with what's here. Your mind will wander, but just keep on coming back. Brushing your teeth is just as sacred an act as sitting here in the, this room, feeling your breath. Keeping it real simple, one thing at a time. Having a resolve to come back every time you've wandered. That's the effort and the willingness. Okay, lost, come on back one more time. Continuity is the key to concentration. Those moments building on each other. And an image that I found helpful is putting a tea kettle on the stove. Using this image for years and years. Put it on the the stove if the flame is on, even if sometimes it's low and sometimes it's higher, if you keep that kettle on the stove, it'll cook. If you take it off every 30 seconds, well, is it boiled yet? No. Okay, you put it back. It's not going to cook. In the same way, continuity of practice is really the key. One thing after another after another, not forced, not tight, but like a dance. Oh, can I be here for this, and now this, and now this? Another great aid to concentration is investigation, bringing an interest. Like I said before, making it interesting as if you never took a step before, as if you never took a breath before. There's a whole universe that starts to open up as you bring your interest to the process. 
concentration does not stay and get better and better and better. Like everything else, it comes and it goes. And I remember sitting with um, this Burmese master, Upandita, and I'd go in and I'd... You were asked to report on your clearest sitting for the day. I thought, okay. And every day you go in. And I'd report out of 24 hours after a while, you're bound to have one clear sitting, right? So I'd go in and I'd report and I'd say, well, this happened in this sitting, and I told him the details. And then, and then I'd say as a little disclaimer, uh, but, you know, they, they weren't really all like that. You know, I was spacey some of the time, and I would tell him that. And I did this for about two or three days running. I'd report a sitting and then a clear sitting and then kind of say that I wasn't so clear the rest of the time. And then at one point he said, you don't have to tell me that other stuff. <laughs> and I thought, oh, well, gosh, I want to be honest. And then I realized, oh, he knows I wasn't that clear the whole time. <laughs> Who am I kidding? Because it's going to come and go. But there's a slope to practice that starts to happen. It's like the forward edge of, of your mindfulness and concentration. You might be clear, then you're kind of on Mars, and then you're a bit more clear. And a bit. So if you want to see your clearest sitting, you can kind of get a sense of your practice from that forward edge. And don't worry about all the other ones that you're, that you're not around as clear if you're giving that wholehearted effort. So, mindfulness leads to concentration, and concentrated mindfulness, a penetrating awareness, flowers as wisdom. What is wisdom? The wisdom to see things clearly, and what we are (coughs) seeing, what is the liberating understanding what are the liberating insights are three aspects of experience. One, that everything changes. To get that more and more deeply, not just as an idea, but in your whole being. Two, that grasping after changing experience is just suffering. And the the more you see that, the more you see the futility of it, and you start to let go of that which changes. And three, the selfless nature of the process, that this too, this being, is a changing process. And there's no entity, no fixed abiding self that is behind this whole process. One way I have of pointing this out to people is uh, I think it was Buckminster Fuller that originally shared this, but uh, it's very useful. Instead of thinking of yourself as a noun, you know, we think of ourselves as some body, something. Just for a moment, think of yourself as a verb. You are a verb, a field of activity and experience that's continually changing. And see what it's like to just think of yourself as this fluid field of activity. Once you see that, and when you get glimpses of it and see it more and more profoundly, it shifts the way you hold yourself and protect yourself and see yourself in relationship to others because you see you are just life expressing itself in this form. This is just life talking to itself through these various forms. That doesn't deny your own uniqueness, but it gives you another frame of reference to which, through which to understand 
how, who you really are. I'll read a, a passage that maybe some of you know from Martha Graham to Agnes de Mille that describes this um, this uniqueness as well as the universal. Martha Graham said, There is a vitality, a life force, a quickening that is translated through you into action and because there is only one of you in all time, this expression is unique. And if you block it, it will never exist through any other medium and will be lost. The world will not have it. It is not your business to determine how good it is, nor how valuable it is, nor how it compares with other expressions. It is your business to keep it yours clearly and directly, to keep the channel open. And the channel is open to something much deeper than who you think you are. Your expression is unique, (coughs) but your true nature is beyond your form. Going to that source of everything. And so it's playing around in both levels of seeing, yes, there is somebody here to be honored and respected and loved. And deeper than that, there is the universal, there is the ultimate reality that is expressing itself in this form. So that wisdom keeps on flowering as the mindfulness deepens. Every moment that you're mindful counts. You are deconditioning habits of grasping, greed, hatred, and delusion. Every single moment you are cultivating through mindfulness non-greed or a generosity of spirit, the ability to let go, non-aversion or loving-kindness, friendliness with the moment, and non-delusion, seeing clearly those three characteristics. So every single moment of mindfulness counts. These are the five faculties. Faith or trust leading to effort, a wholehearted, spacious, balanced effort. The effort to be mindful leading to mindfulness. Mindfulness developing into wisdom, into concentration and the concentration penetrating our usual confusion to see what is so, flowering as wisdom. That's what we're doing here. I'll close with um, a poem that I I love from Dana Falls, who Tara read from before, (coughs) called Awakening Now. Why wait for your awakening? The moment your eyes are open, seize the day. Would you hold back when the beloved beckons? Would you deliver your litany of sins like a child's collection of seashells, prized and labeled? No, I can't step across the threshold, you say, eyes downcast. I'm not worthy. I'm afraid. My motives aren't pure. I'm not perfect, and surely I haven't practiced nearly enough. My meditation isn't deep. My prayers are sometimes insincere. I still chew my fingernails and the refrigerator isn't clean. Do you value your reasons for staying small more than the light shining through the open door? Forgive yourself. Now is the only time you have to be whole. 
Now is the sole moment that exists to live in the light of your true self. Perfection is not a prerequisite for anything but pain. Please, oh please, don't continue to believe in your disbelief. This is the day of your awakening. So let's sit for a moment. This talk was given by James Barris at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on April 22, 2005. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio Archive. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.